Welcome, everybody, and hello, Adelaide. It's wonderful to be back. Um, thank you. We're very happy we could get on planes to come here. Um, my name's Natasha Cheecher, and I've come up from Tasmania again to be in this beautiful space. And I'm really delighted to welcome leading investigative journalist Louise Milligan to speak about her book, Justice. So delighted to be here. Yeah. So um, I'll begin by acknowledging the Ghana that the Ghana people are the traditional custodians of the Adelaide Plains and this beautiful land and pay respect, respect to their elders past, present and future. We recognise and respect their cultural heritage, their beliefs and their relationship with the land and acknowledge that they are of continuing importance to the Ghana people living today. So moving on to administration, um, thank you so much for attending Adelaide Writers Week and while it's wonderful to see you here, I am obliged to remind you that you need to remain appropriately physically distanced and this is crucial as it's a key condition of our COVID management plan approved by SA Health. So before we start, could you please check that you're sitting the right distance or standing the right distance away from people? Um, I'd also ask you to support all our authors. You know, it's been a very tough time for the cultural community in Australia and more broadly, so I'd ask you to support them by um, purchasing their books at the end of the session and remind you that there is a signing table where Louise will be available at the end. And um, I'll begin. What I'll do, what I'll do is... It's very difficult. I have to say this is one of the most confronting books I've ever read. The only other book in sort of in this category for me has been some stuff around the Holocaust because I used to do a lot of work in that space. Um, and I'm really glad I finished the book because there's some really important messages about power in Australia and its manifestations and construction and how we might move towards a better place. Um, in a nutshell, this book is about what can happen to people who become witnesses in trials related to sex abuse, um, including the victims of abuse, including child victims, uh, and including people like Louise Milligan who decide they're going to try and write about what's going on. So as well before, I'll st before I start, I'll just um, indicate that there may be material that comes up in conversation which is distressing to some people because we are dealing with sexual abuse, including of children, and I know that that affects um, people, especially people who've been proximate to that kind of incident or the victim of it, really, or survivor of it, should I say, really quite deeply. So just warning there. And also a reminder that we want to stay away from anything like a defamatory statement or imputation about particular individuals, and I know Louise will, but I just want to remind you, especially in your questions, and there will be an opportunity for questions, that, that's, that we do operate under the rule of law. So um, without further ado, I'll, I'll hand over to Louise to say a few words about the book and also to read a passage from it. And thank you again for coming. Yeah, thanks so much, Natasha. Thank you for being here. I was here last year and it was just such a wonderful crowd. I love Adelaide and I love the people of Adelaide, so thank you. I actually think the most appropriate thing, to, way to start is by reading the prologue to my book because it kind of sets up the conversation and it sets up exactly what it, the book is about. You don't sleep the night before that first day in court. You spend it tossing and turning, bathed in a slick sweat you had never felt before, glistening like a pallid chicken about to be shoved into the oven and roasted. You vomit. Your heart feels so close to the palm of the hand that, that's clasped to your chest that it might jump on out and tumble off the bed, still pulsing in the moonlight. Your mind spins, processing and reprocessing questions you might be asked, retorts you might deliver, then remorse that those retorts might sound too much. Don't be an angry ant, one of the lawyers had said. That's what he wants. Angry ants are always the worst witnesses. You think of the others who are about to give their evidence, how tormented they must be, of their poor families struggling to know how to make it okay for them. And you think of those in their premature graves. You cry. You get up stupidly early as there is no point 
lying in that stupid bed. As the shower water pelts down, you will it to wash away the fear and the signs of insomnia. And then you get out, blow dry your hair within an inch of its life, and look in the mirror. And somehow, at that moment, a deathly calm descends over the room like an opium cloud. Your heart slows down to a dull thrum. This man is not going to fuck with me. And that is your mantra, your prayer, as you make your way to the Melbourne Magistrates Court that March morning. This man is not going to fuck with me. My experience as a witness was illuminating, traumatic, and ultimately politicising. This book recounts that experience, but it is not about me. It is about and for the people I have come to know who wanted to tell their story about men, some in the highest echelons of power, only to be met with a paternalistic, disappointing and bruising system that often made them regret their decision to come forward. A system where, even if they received what is considered to be justice, they came away from the experience worse than when they went into it. It's about those who made it and, no, and those who never got there in the first place. It's about people who died because they were afraid, because they were traumatised by what happened to them, because they were traumatised by the criminal justice system itself. It is about the disservice we have done them and others across the country every day. So, what Louise does very forensically in this book is drills down into the courtroom experiences of witnesses in the trials of the cases involving alleged sex abuse of Saxton Mullins. There, there are three cases she deals with. Saxton Mullins. Would you, Saxon. Saxon, sorry. Saxon. Saxon. Saxon, Saxon, Saxon yeah, Mullins. Sorry. Would you like to just give a little snapshot of that case for people who are not aware? Sure. So Saxon was an 18-year-old young woman who was a virgin who went out on her first night out in Sydney's King's Cross met a guy on the dance floor of a nightclub. He happened to be the nightclub owner's son. And he um, asked her to go out the back of... Well, he asked her to go to a VIP room. He brought her out the back of the nightclub to a dark alleyway. He told her to put her hands up against the wall. And within five minutes of meeting her, he anally penetrated her. Uh, Saxon always said that she did not consent to that experience and she made a complaint to the police the next morning. Every fact finder, be it jury or judge, found that Saxon did not consent to that experience. Uh, a, a jury in the first instance found the, the, the alleged perpetrator, Luke Lazarus, um, guilty of, of sexual assault. He appealed on a technicality and there was a retrial ordered. Uh, it was before a, a judge alone in New South Wales. They have an option to have a judge when it's a, a notorious case because the view is that the jury might be poisoned by the notorious publicity surrounding the, the case, which there was in this. That judge found that while Saxon didn't consent to sex, Luke Lazarus didn't know that she wasn't consenting. Now, there may be a woman in Australia who would elect to have anal sex within five minutes of meeting someone as her first ever sexual experience on her hands and knees in the gravel, in a dark alleyway, afraid and alone, I have not met that woman and I don't know that I ever will, but that is what the judicial officer found in that case. It was then appealed again and the Court of Criminal Appeal in New South Wales found that the judge had made errors in her 
reasoning, that she didn't take into account steps that Luke Lazarus might have um, gone through in his mind to, to ascertain consent, or at least that she didn't enunciate the steps. And so, so that they found that there was a flaw in her judgment, but they found that because by this stage it had been a five-year process and Luke Lazarus had served time in prison, I, from memory it was about 18, well, 18 months or a year or something, um, so they thought that it wasn't fair to put him through a third trial. So Saxon walked away from that process with essentially legal limbo, but along the way, and that's what the sort of book looks at, she was subjected to this terrifying ordeal and, and in court, you know, um, the cross-examination of her by a defence counsel who's actually like a very charming man when you meet him, but, um, you know, he, he described her 20-something times as, as madam, you know, this 18-year-old. And he actually explained to me that when you are cross-examining a young person like that, he wasn't speaking <coughs> the specifics because he's not allowed to discuss the case, but um, you want to neutralise them. You don't want the jury to think that she's a poor young thing. And so you call her madam, you know, um, to discredit her. So there's a lot of detail in the book about the strategies that successful barristers and senior counsel deploy to win, um, which, invo which involves discrediting the witness. So there's a lot in the book around those strategies and we'll, come, we'll move on to that in a minute. The second case that you outline in some detail is the case of Parrot Street, the St Kevin's case. Would you like to just um, mm. summarise that for the audience? Parrot Street is another wonderful young person like Saxon who came forward to me to tell me about how he had been um, groomed by an athletics coach at St Kevin's College in Melbourne, which... For those of you who know Melbourne, St Kevin's is a very well-known school. Uh, a lot of the sort of city's elite send their sons there. It's a, a, a Catholic school uh, in Turak, the most expensive suburb in Melbourne. Um, there had been a conviction in that case. Uh, but Paris, Paris was devastated because the school essentially went into bat for the perpetrator instead of him, the victim. Paris was um, 15 years old when he came before the court and he was cross-examined by the same person who would cross-examine me and we'll come to that later, Robert Richter QC. And I was in the unusual position of being able to hear Paris's um, cross-examination because it was in the magistrate's court and he, um, they don't have transcripts so he had been, excuse me, he had been sent an audio uh, an audio tape of, of that proceeding. And I remember being fascinated because it was after my own cross-examination how he would be spoken to and being absolutely... Oh, I found it soul-destroying to listen to this 15-year-old boy being spoken to with the same derision and contempt that Mr Richter spoke to me, in my opinion. Um, it was really, really terrible. And Paris went into that process um, not knowing really much about what the legal process would look like. He wasn't really given hardly any direction. He didn't have a lawyer like I did. I was being advised by one of the best QCs in Australia. Paris went in there. I, I really related to him because he was a bit like me at school, like that kid, you know. He was... Um, a lovely, lovely young man, straight-A student, nice-looking, the world's at his feet, goes to a private school, you know, everything's going well in his life and then it all unravels because of this horrible incident, this disgusting series of text messages and conversations with this athletics coach. But Paris thinks, well, if this athletics coach has said these things to me, I'm worried that he's going to do these things to another child. He thought in conscience the only thing that he could do was report to police, which he did very soon after it happened. And he thought he was doing his civic duty. 
And he thought that he just had to go there and tell his truth about this horrible circumstance, which was very well backed up by evidence. And so, you know, the prospects of there not being a conviction were always slim. And then he, he went to, they go to a remote witness facility, supposedly to protect them, which I have real problems with these remote witness facilities, but anyway, that's another, another issue. And the screen snaps on, and there is his interlocutor, the defence counsel, Robert Richter, and the barrage starts. And from that moment, Paris's whole world began to crash down. He couldn't understand why is this person speaking to me like this. No one had warned him that, that this is the style that this person uses. This is the sort of thing that you can expect. And the screen turned off that day and Paris just dissolved in sobs. He still got punch marks in his wall from that day when he went home because he just couldn't understand. He's, it's six years later and Paris is now more traumatised by the institutional betrayal by his school, who wrote, the principal of the school wrote a, 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 a letter um, for the court in support of the perpetrator. And so, and, and one of the other, the Dean of Sport gave evidence for the perpetrator. No one checked in with Paris. Um, he's, so he's, he's still so traumatised by that and the cross-examination and the legal process, more so, I would say, than the actual crime itself. And what a disgusting indictment on the criminal justice process that is. So what are... When the planes left us, um, it's nice to see a plane flying though. When I um, so we'll come to the third case, which is the committal hearing of Cardinal George Pell, and there's no one in Australia who doesn't know about this case now, in which you were a witness. Would you like to? You, your reading of the prologue to the book gives us some indication of what that experience was like for you. Um, would you like to put that in a little snapshot as well? It was absolutely scarifying. It followed months of legal meetings, you know, nine-hour legal meetings, because we had this huge volume of material uh, that related to the complainants against the Cardinal. And I should say, you know, everyone knows that the High Court ultimately, in its wisdom, acquitted the Cardinal. Uh, I don't want to go into what, was what he was accused of. Um, but I had been the witness of first complaint in that case because one of the men who made uh, a, a complaint against the Cardinal, um, I, I was the first person in the world that he'd ever told about it. And um, so I was cross-examined for a full day by Mr Richter. He never let up for a second. I was never treated, in my opinion, from what I saw with anything approaching dignity and respect. I was subjected to sexism. I was, for instance, um, cross-examined for 90 minutes about granular differences between the anus, the sphincter and the rectum. To be honest, something... I mean, I sort of said, where's the effect of at the end? Like, I, I, I've never thought about those things much in my life, you know? I just, it was so disgusting and wearying and, you know, clearly designed not just to, you know, in my opinion, not just designed to, to try and find holes in the complainant's argument, which of course was his role, but also to deeply discredit me. And, um, but the, 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 in a nutshell, at the end of that day, you know, everyone said to me, you did really well. The, 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 you know, the, the Crown was happy, the police were happy, my friends and family and, you know, people at the ABC, everyone thought that I handled myself well. But still the next day, I couldn't get out of bed, couldn't move out of the bed, couldn't get up to get a glass of water. And I just kept thinking about all the victims of all sexual crimes 
coming before the courts and being spoken to in this manner in a way that no one speaks to anyone in any other forum of society. I've said before the only sort of close sort of thing to it is parliament, but you're not talking about the worst thing that ever happened to you when you're a member of parliament, your, you know, alleged rape as a child mm. or an adult for that matter. Um, I just... As I say, it was politicising. I just felt that when I recover from this, when this whole legal process with the Cardinal is finally over, I need to tell this story. I need to speak to victims. I need to read transcripts to find out if this is happening to a lot of other people. And guess what? It is. It's happening all the time. And psychologists routinely have told me that their clients, they need, you know, often years of therapy to disclose in the first place, to come before the courts, and then years of therapy to recover from it. Often they are suicidal when they come out the other side. And that includes a number of people that I spoke to who had convictions in their cases. The convictions didn't ameliorate the horrible re-trauma that they suffered? I think for me that was... The most, so some of the details that you've alluded to in the discussion so far, um, which, are, which are laid out in sometimes horrifying detail in this book, that wasn't so much what shocked me about your book. What shocked me was the portrayal in the book of a justice system in our country um, where empathy seems to have been corroded to a degree that is beyond alarming. So you know, I trained as a lawyer. My first career was in law. I was in the first cohort of graduates in the early 90s where there was an equal gender mix in our cohort. Some of my best friends is now senior counsel. And I found reading about... So I fully understand the role that a barrister plays as mm. a forceful advocate for her or his client to ensure justice. Mm. And I fully understand that that's part of the rule of law. What really concerns me about this book is that I don't recognise what I was taught about how the law works and about how the rule of law works, not just in terms of the courtroom behaviours, but in terms of some of the other um, ways that power has been brought to bear on these cases. So if I take... I'll just shine the light on your case, for example. So what happened to you in terms of the kind of... Well, receiving death threats, for example, after you started to speak as a journalist professionally about this? Would you just like to talk about that? There was a concerted campaign waged by... Uh, a certain media organisation. No so prizes for guessing which one. But, I mean, the thing that was very hurtful to me about that was that I used to work for that media organisation and they loved having me there. And I left on fantastic terms. I was asked on many occasions to come back. They had been my friends. There were people involved in this campaign who my children had had playdates with their children. It was really, really disturbing to watch. They consistently made mistakes um, and I would say in some cases there were deliberate mistruths said, which they never corrected. They never corrected the record. Um, I found it bizarre that we were talking about, like talking about the broad here, like let's not sort of go into individuals, but we were talking about an issue of institutional child abuse and a generation of children who were desperately let down. And frankly, in the Catholic Church, industrial scale crimes committed and covered up on a massive scale. And they were seeking to protect 
the institution, despite the fact that we'd had this five-year royal commission that had laid it all out. And I just became roadkill in that scenario. But, you know, I'm a tough lady uh, and I just had to keep marching on. And the reason I did keep marching on was because I care about people. I care about people who had their lives destroyed as little children and who deserve better. So I got to the end of it and, you know, it, it culminated, as you said, Natasha, in a very concerted campaign by an individual who was consistently threatening to kill me in very specific ways, including um, referencing the New Zealand mosque killer and an incident that he was going to, going to sort of do. It was very, very difficult for me as a, a, a victim of this campaign to get the police to take it sort of... They, 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 they took it seriously when they spoke to me, but they would just not act. And, and, and he was talking about, like, a particular time that he was going to come and kill me at a particular event. You know, it was very, very not, concerning. Not this event. Not this <laughs> event, no. <laughs> um, it was very, very concerning. And um, ultimately, he was convicted, but it was, a, it was a complete saga. And it gave me, actually, quite a lot of empathy for, for victims in terms of the way that the system deals with them. In fact, the first time that he went to court, no one bothered to tell me that he was going to court. And I only found out months later that the judge had let him off on a mental health thing. And then he came back again and started threatening to kill me again. So that individual is patently unwell. Yes. Um, but a lot of the people who we're talking about in terms of the what I will call the campaign that's been run against your um, exposés are not patently unwell no. and are in really senior roles in uh, public life in Australia. Um, can, this is more than a failure of empathy. Can you, do you have an explanation of the lengths to which people seem to be willing to go to cover up or protect perpetrators of crimes, especially against children? Because I don't fully understand... You know, I was raised Catholic like you. I have cousins who were raped by priests. Most people... Most people in Australia would have, if, whether you know it or not. I don't really understand why, once there's a certain degree of knowledge... And the St Kevin's case is a beautiful example of this because this is only a few years ago. Mm. Why... While the Royal Commission was happening. Why, but why, do, why is the instinctive response of so many... In holders of institutional power to close ranks and protect the people who they believe to be their own, when in fact the people who are their own are the children in whose care, who've been placed in their care. I, re I actually don't understand this as a question of logic. I don't either, Natasha. Mm. I really don't. And I could try and attribute a, an explanation for it, but I'd just be guessing. Um, I, I do think that there was an element of you know, these are fellow combatants in their culture war. These are people who, you know, they had sort of aligned themselves with. I mean, for instance, George Pell wrote a, you know, weekly column for, for News Corp. Um, but, you know, had was friends with um, two prime ministers. They, they had, in the past, you know, um, raised doubts about, um, about the people who had made accusations against him. I, I really just don't... No, um, but the thing that really concerns me about some of this, and I'm, I, I want to talk in the broad here, but there are people who have been so gaslit by this experience, and I know many families of people who have um, suicided, and friends of people who have suicided, who lost their battle, um, often the people who suicided are not necessarily the people who you would expect. So a lot of people who have child abuse or, or, or other sort of sex crimes, 
they do go on a, a, a tragic trajectory. They substance abuse, eating disorders, poor life decisions. You know, some of them end up in jail, and then of course they come before someone like Robert Richter, and they're perfect. You know, fodder. But um, but often the people who suicide are the ones who were keeping it together on the surface. And I will say that um, you know there are people involved in the story we've just been talking about who are the type of people who keep it together on the surface, for whom there was so much pressure taking on such an enormous power. And it concerns me greatly that this constant um, belittling that just continues to go on, um, that the impact that that has on those people, you know, I, I really, really worry about them. And I really worry about the motives um, of the people who are doing it. I wish they would look into their hearts. I wish that they would stop fighting their culture war and think about their own children. Like, just think about, you know, even what the Prime Minister said the other day in relation to the Brittany Higgins example. Um, he was pilloried for, for saying, you know, as a father of daughters, because, oh, well, you can't... Um, empathise if you're not a father of daughters. I've had a lot of fathers of daughters say that and I think they're coming from an honest place. Um, in the Prime Minister's case, he had to be reminded by his wife that he was a father of daughters. That was the issue for me. But, but, but think of yourself as a father of daughters or sons or as a sister or as a mother or as a friend, or as a, another person in society, as a person who understands the law, as a person who understands that children should not be raped, that, that, that there, is, there are lifelong consequences of these crimes. Put yourself in that position and just stop. Just stop, because it's not right. It's not right to do this to people. And it's really, really hard for people who are the friends of someone who has been accused. And it's happening right now with a cabinet minister. It's really, really hard for them to think that their friend could have done the terrible things that they're being accused of. I have empathy for that proposition, but you know, we don't know who necessarily someone is behind closed doors. You know, there is a presumption of innocence, um, but at the same time, that doesn't mean a presumption of that 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 the accuser is a liar. Like that, that that's the first thing that we jump to. Are you optimistic about change for the better in terms of reforming our justice system? Because this is um. This has got, there's a lot of extraordinarily uh, rigorous and detailed analysis of the way the criminal justice system works and questions around reasonable doubt and suggestions around modifications that might be made in terms of courtroom procedure and indeed training of barristers and indeed, you know, big questions about the role of gender and how that manifests in courtroom behaviours. It's a lot. <laughs> Are you... I mean, I just mentioned, you know, I was in that first cohort that popped out in 1991 where we had gender parity. Look at the profession. That gender parity has not held moving through. Are we going to have to wait 200 years for there to be... I mean, it's a really serious question it about is. where the rule of law in this country and our, senses of, our sense of fairness including in relation to that, that really long-cherished idea of Austra that Australians have that we do give people a fair go. Mm. Are you optimistic, Louise? Because this has taken a big toll on you, mm. this work. I, I think, uh, gratifyingly, I have been contacted by a number of people, senior people in the profession, who do want change. I've been contacted by barristers' chambers who want me to be involved in continuing professional development on cross-examination to try and explain the... Yeah, and... 
it almost made me want to cry when those people contacted me. Um, I've been contacted by a lot of people who, who do want that change. I think there are very significant gender issues, as you say. So, for instance, um, I looked at mainly at the Victorian and New South Wales bars because it, looking at every single one in the country was just going to be too enormous. But, um, but um, you look at the, the New South Wales bar... Um, there are twice as many barristers aged 50 and male as all and above as all women at the New South Wales bar. And, you know, like 1% are silks, in criminal silks um, in the Victorian bar, you know. So this is an incredibly male culture. I mean, women barristers like Jane Needham, um, a silk in Sydney, described to me after she was sort of looking into the Dyson Hayden sort of situation that, um, you know, there were, there were um, barristers who would say to her about, you know, prop, better treatment of women and that they couldn't make jokes anymore. So there was one barrister who said, you know, but I have this joke that I tell my secretary where, you know, like when she get, bends down on the floor and I say, while you're there, I can't say... And, and, and Jane was like, just don't tell that joke. Don't tell that joke. That would be, you know, an easy way to get around that situation. But, you know, there are serious consequences for, I think, the empathy for the w women and children who sort of come before their courts. Um, and there's so much more to that that I could talk about. But um, the, in terms of fixing the system, I think there are a couple of really easy things that could be mm -hmm. done. One, appoint a lawyer... For, for complainants, right? So I had Jack Rush QC, an amazing QC, advising me. Complainants have no one. And there's this misapprehension and even through, through some of the... Well, a victim who had a conviction in her case that I spoke to for the book, she was describing the Crown as her lawyer. She didn't understand, even after going through this like quite complicated, long process to get a conviction, that the Crown wasn't her lawyer. The Crown doesn't act for the victim. The Crown is there to prove a case beyond reasonable doubt. And Crown prosecutors have very differing ways of approaching that. And some of them think it's not their job to really have much to do with the complainant. Um, others think that it's very, very important. And, and, and interestingly speaking to women Crown prosecutors, they were much more in favour of really preparing the witness. Now, that's not coaching the witness, which is improper. That's just preparing them for what they're going to expect. But a lot of them don't do it. Um, I think that, you know, a lawyer who doesn't sit at the bar table because we have to remember that this is not a context, contest between the victim or complainant and the, and the accused. It's a contest between the state and the accused. But the lawyer could at least sit in court and make sure that, for instance, the provisions under the Evidence Act in Section 41, which ban improper questioning but are often not enforced in court, um, are enforced. And, and, and also, like in Victoria, for instance, we have a Charter of Human Rights, um, which, you know, one of, one of the provisions is around uh, witnesses um, to ensure that their human rights are not being breached um, and also to prepare them so that they're not little beautiful 15-year-old baby Paris Street going in there thinking he's doing his public duty and being smashed to smithereens. Or his friend. I mean, I remember there Ned. was a uh, remarkable young man in your account who's interrogated, who's, who's hectored, I will use that word, on the difference between using the word pre-cum and pre-ejaculate. I mean, who talks to a 15-year-old boy like that in a court? So I'm really interested in questions around where's the line in terms of people's professional obligations and responsibility and what makes some people think they can overcross it. And then I'll flip back to you because you have been, to my mind, very wrongfully accused of overstepping the line from being an investigative journalist to being an advocate 
because you have been politicised. Um, I don't see how anyone in your situation who is responsible could do anything else. Is this book the end of the line for you in terms of pursuing this justice agenda? Because this is a very different thing from signing up to be an ABC investigative journalist and doing interesting stories. You know, this is a whole different terrain. How do you feel about that? Do you want to keep doing it? Is the personal and professional cost worth it? Where next, Louise? <laughs> <laughs> Easy question. Um, it's... Well, at the moment, I've returned to my day job, which is a job and three quarters being a Four Corners mm. journalist. Um, uh, and there are things, as anyone who has been reading my journalism over the past few days, operating at the moment in this very realm that are deeply disturbing and deeply political. I'm putting one foot in front of the other at the moment, um, but I'm putting one foot in front of the other because I think it's, you know, we can't be intimidated by the exercise of raw power in order to protect alleged perpetrators. Because you have... Um You've not just become a lightning rod for criticism in the culture wars, you've also become a lightning rod for people who want justice done. So, for example, I was having a drink with a very lovely young woman I met last night at the Writers' Week party and we were talking about your book. And, she, and then we were talking about the current questions around parliamentary culture and abuse, allegations of abuse, and she said, look... She said, if something like that happened to me, I'd want to go to someone like Louise Milligan, Samantha Maiden, um, possibly um, Sarah Hanson-Young and Penny Wong. I wouldn't go to... And then she listed all the kind of channels that you would think somebody would go to to make a complaint. So that puts a lot of... That, that really puts a lot of pressure on people like you and Samantha and so on and so on. How do you manage that for yourself? It's really difficult to manage <clears throat> in the sense that I'm only one person. Yeah. And I'm constantly... I mean, over the past couple of weeks and, in fact, the past few months, um, I have been absolutely bombarded by women who are raging at the system in which they worked or are still working politicians and staff members. And they, to a person, have said to me that this system is deeply sexist. And I'm not talking about, you know, <laughs> which is the sort of ridiculous criticism that somehow this is an attack from the left. I'm talking about lifelong Liberals. I'm talking about the most conservative liberals, like not even the wet liberals, you know, like, oh, they're the ones connected to Malcolm Turnbull, we don't take them seriously, you know. No, these are people who are very, very conservative. And in fact, one of them said to me last year when I was researching my Inside the Canberra Bubble story for Four Corners, that you walk into the Prime Minister's office and it's like walking into a rugby club. And that whenever you raised anything that they considered women's issues, they just did not want to know. And, you know, there are lots and lots and lots of stories. I couldn't possibly keep up with every single one of them. Um, but the point is that we should not buy the spin that there is not a problem here. There is a problem here. Um, and it's important that it's connected to what I write about in the book because the women who might come forward, not only are they coming forward to a system in Parliament that doesn't have any proper procedures to handle their complaints, if they are the victims of sexual crimes and I have spoken to others who claim that they are the victims of sexual crimes in the Parliament, in one case a politician, if that is happening and we have this system, you know, they have no um, 
confidence that even in the criminal justice system that their complaint will be handled properly. The, the, the stats on the number of um, convictions in, in sexual crimes when you compare them to comparable crimes like, you know, assault or ro robbery or, you know, even murder, you know, they're so much lower. Um, and, you know, even the other day, uh, a Minister of the Crown, Mr Dutton, describing Brittany Higgins' um, allegations as he said, she said. The fact that these complaints were um, communicated to numerous people uh, in the parliament, numerous people in the Prime Minister's office, and we are expected to believe that the Prime Minister wasn't told about this at a time when we were doing the Four Corners story inside the Canberra bubble. No one thought to tell the Prime Minister there's a rape situation that you need to know about or he didn't ask, what does that say about the culture? But it's all connected in the sense of these are male cultures. And one of the issues that has been brought up, you know, since we did the Inside the Canberra Bubble story was um, the fact that, oh, well, this is not just on one side of politics. And I would absolutely agree. Uh, I have had complaints from women on the Labor side of things, but they are the tiny minority. And I've spoken to women across the spectrum, from the most conservative to the most left-wing. Um, and as I say, consistently the vast majority of complaints were about government people. Now, that's not because people on the right of politics are more likely to be um, abusers or harassers or dis you know, discriminate against women it's because there are fewer women there. And it's exactly like the situation at the bar. There are fewer women there. So who does a woman go to, you know, and, and at the bar, how do they empathise when it's, a, uh, it's people that they don't see? You know, for instance, one of the, one of the people at the bar was saying to me that there was a flaw um, or in, I think it was Melbourne, where they had a, an annual Christmas party and it was at a men's club, like, you know, something like the Melbourne Club or something, where women aren't allowed, you know? So when women are sort of, like, locked out of these processes, you are going to get these problems and you are going to get systems that don't cope with them the way that they should. So this is going to be a long-running uh, conversation. Um national conversation. We have a little time for questions. Could I ask for short, succinct questions? There's a microphone in the centre. Thank you. Hi, hi Louise. Um, I'm just wondering, with the polarisation of people and with the nameless paper uh, media and uh, TV station, uh, Turnbull spoke about it and, and uh, basically, to me, and because you've worked there, it seems the broader picture of um, that um, uh, there is that polarisation and features that, that women have are not, um, you know, encouraged. How do you see... I mean, I know uh, Rudd has started his thing about against the Murdoch media. How do you see that we change that bigger picture of uh, the media being so polarising and you being typecast as the lefty who is interested in women's issues and or assaults and things. Do you see any way I, through I, that is... I think it's a really big question. I do think there's... I think forums like this are really important. I think encouraging young people to read widely. Um, I, I did a story for Four Corners a couple of years ago about literacy and I interviewed a woman called Marianne Wolfe who was talking about the fact that young people are not reading deeply and that there is something about immersing yourself in novels from a young age which can encourage empathy and nuance and understanding of others' perspectives. And if you don't do that, this is where you get the polarisation, the kind of Trumpian 
discourse, you know, where it's one side lining up against another side. I would say, and, and this is a long-term thing, that encouraging our young people to read books, to question, to, to take in a variety of media is really important. But I also just quickly want to say that I'm, I also find it problematic when, every, when people lump the Murdoch media into one sort of hateful sort of thing. I mean, Samantha Maiden, who is a good friend of mine, is an amazing journalist who works for news.com.au. I have lots of other really good friends who work for The Australian and, you know, and other parts of um, News Corp. They're doing really, really good work. And, and demonising uh, News Corp is not helpful because then they get into that position where they just, you know, they lock in. It's about embracing and it's about having proper discussions but also calling out bad behaviour when, it, when it's seen. Thanks. Thank you. Can I take you back to what you were talking about earlier about witness bashing in cases? Two related questions. Would it surprise you to be told that a young man familiar with courtroom environment giving evidence in a routine summary prosecution for someone else failing to give way to the right could be made to feel as though he was being accused of something? Does this suggest that judicial officers ought to be much more active in constraining defence counsel or prosecution counsel, for that matter, who are going on fishing expeditions? That, that is a really good point and it's something that I look at in the book. Mm. Um, one of the issues is with some of these uh, defence counsel is that they are so uh, relentless that they wear the judicial officer down. And it gets to the point where the judge can't keep intervening, 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 intervening because it will create an appeal point mm. that there might be an apprehended bias in the judicial officer. So, again, I think that that's where a lawyer for um, the complainant is really useful because it brings in another party who's not the Crown to sort of keep an eye on that stuff and so it's not all up to the judge because frankly in some of these cases judges are being bullied and um, yeah it's 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 not on so yeah I think if, if if we did have another person in the courtroom who was looking at that it, it might just help things a little bit next question we want to know what you think Louise, of a, a person who is a decent person in their, his, particularly Robert Richter, because you've brought him up, how can a decent person to his wife, son, daughter, grandchildren, and I assume friends, how can a decent person become such a, a disgusting, horrible person in court? Uh, could, could I just stop you for a moment? I like, because I, I just, I just want to be like, I'd really rather not make things personal. Well, I won't say. Yeah. That. I, yeah. You, you brought him up, so that's why I mentioned. It. Yeah, Sorry. yeah. I won't say. But how can a decent person to a family turn into such a monster? Is it the same old thing as money and power? There's a there's a really really interesting anecdote in the book, which is about um, a guy called John Desmond, who is a quite notorious. Um, you know, old school barrister who who behaves in a similar way in court. He, everyone knows about John Desmond in Melbourne, right? And I actually interviewed John Desmond for the book. He went on the SBS Insight program and he was asked what, how he would feel, would he encourage his own wife or daughter to, to go through this process? And he started crying. And... And it was quite a full-on moment, uh, and and he said that he, that he he wouldn't, and and Jenny Brocky said, well, why? And he said, because of people like me. And I interviewed him for the book, and he was still absolutely unapologetic about the way that he behaved in court, 
and there was a case that I look at it in the book where a mother um, gave a victim impact statement to the court about what had happened to her daughter, what he'd done to her daughter in cross-examination. He, it, it, she was disgusted that in, I think it was 2019, the case, that a young woman could be treated in this way that she found so profoundly distressing, sexist, you know, all of those things. And um, he, so she tendered this to the court. He objected to it being read out in court. The judge allowed that. So the woman was not allowed to have her victim impact statement read out in court. And I asked him about it and I said, you know, how do you feel about this mother? And he said words to the effect of, well, you know, yeah, she's upset about it. I'm upset that Collingwood didn't win the grand final. And there's a lot in Louise's book about this splitting, the, the hired guns who are barristers in this system are required to do or feel that they're required to do in order to do their job, and quite a bit of stuff about the consequences for them as well. So it's a very... Yeah. You know, the drinking they culture. They are traumatised too. So it's... If you think about the system holistically and how we can make it a space that's healthier for mm. everybody to step into. So so that's why, you know, not not personalising Robert Richter's behaviours. I've, I've seen other sides of Robert Richter. I've seen him advocate, advocate behind the scenes very strongly that's for social justice like. issues. So yeah. it's very important, I think, to separate the behaviours. And, and, and can I just from, also say on yeah, that, that point, yeah. I, I didn't speak to Robert Richter for the book because, to be honest, I think I would vomit like I I'm so traumatized by that no not not because I'm saying he's an awful person or whatever because I am traumatized by what he did to me right but I did speak to a lot of other of his contemporaries and his friends and they talked to me about this unmet trauma this unmet secondary trauma that they had that they didn't speak about that they never got help for they so many of them admitted that they were problem drinkers and they talked about one high-profile barrister that drinks half a bottle of scotch a day. Before he... But, and he starts before <laughs> yeah. he goes to yeah. court, right? And, and, and they admitted to me things like they can't watch depressing movies that, you know, that they just keep moving from case to case to case. And, you know, one guy, he said, you know, his wife keeps telling him he needs to take some time out and he never does. And these are people that work for themselves. So they have these kind of, you know, chats at the Melbourne Club or whatever, but they don't actually have the sort of institutional systems in place that we have at the ABC, for instance, mm -hmm. where, you know, we have a trauma counsellor or we have, you know, an HR department or all those sorts of things. You know, I like, you know, despite everything that I've said today, I have lots of friends who are barristers and lots of barristers who have gone into battle for me who I just love. I love these people, you know? So I don't want this to seem like I'm this kind of like unreconstructed person who doesn't, you know, who bashes up barristers. But I do want them to be honest about the system that they are a part of and the system that, you know, they refuse in some cases to... Um, to want to change because it's kind of like they're so enmeshed in it, you know? One very, very short question and then we'll have to conclude. Um, just quickly, Louise, um, I was here last year and, and, and it's an absolute pleasure to be here this year, but there's a side of me that says, I, I don't actually want to be here next year listening to the same stories and um, I, I want to thank you for your courage and my question is, can we clone you? <laughs> <laughs> it it would pro possibly stop my phone from spontaneously combusting, which is what it's about to do. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. And I really appreciate all of the people who have reached out to me, you know, thousands of people now over the past few years to inquire about um, my own, um, you know how I'm coping, how, you know, to, to say that they support what I've done and, and all of that. It, it means the world to me. Um, but, you know, for me, the number one thing is standing up for people who can't stand up for themselves. And certainly, certainly... 
I would say <clears throat> this book very does go some way to balancing the record. This is how I view this book. This is another piece of evidence, if you like, that I do believe as Australians we all we do all have an obligation. You know, as unpleasant as a lot of the details are in this book, the devil is in the detail. And if we don't know, we can't we can't listen, respond and engage in dialogue around where we're going next. So I do urge you all to buy the book, um, come to the signing table to meet Louise. And while you're doing that, I'll just remind you to please respect social distancing. And if any of the COVID marshals ask you to move, please do that because they're doing their job in the best way. Thank you, everybody. Adelaide is, I always say this, Adelaide is the best writers festival in Australia because... <laughs> There's something about you South Australians. You, you know how to do dialogue in a way that I don't know that places, you know, I can say this as a Tasmanian, um, I don't know that other parts of Australia do it quite as well as you, so special thanks mm. at the end of this really horrible year where we've all been hiding at home too much for coming and being part of a much broader conversation about justice, fairness and where we're all heading together. Thank you. Thank you so much.